Hello, everyone, and welcome to JM Rewind. My name is Nachum Siegel, and JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out recent interviews that have happened on JM in the AM. Hadassah Lieberman has written a book. She was almost the second lady of the United States, has always represented the Jewish people very well. Uh, her um, her book is out. She was a recent guest on JM in the AM, and here she is on JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, well, I already off the air told uh, Hadassah Lieberman how amazing the book is. Now I get to tell her uh, on the air. The book is called Hadassah, an American Story, written by Hadassah Lieberman. It says here, uh, Hadassah Lieberman has had a rewarding career dedicated to healthcare issues, assisting not-for-profit organizations, improving educational standards, and promoting international understanding with their particular focus on global women's health. I will add two things. Number one, oh, and by the way, it's a Brandeis University Press uh, publication. I'm sure available everywhere. She'll tell us in a minute. Uh, I will add two things. Uh, number one, uh, she and her husband and family have um, have never made a big deal, yet always made a big deal about being a Shomer Shabbos. And if you get what I mean, and I think my listeners of many years know exactly what I mean, uh, they made a big deal in their own personal lives, but when it came to others and it came to the public forum, they were very understated about everything. Most likely the best way to go about all that. That's number one. And secondly, she would have been an amazing second lady of the United States of America. Hadassah Lieberman, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Oh, thank you so much. It makes me smile to hear your voice and to be back on here. You do such a magnificent program for everyone. Well, I appreciate that very much. I, I, I thank you for that very, very much. And you and your husband have been a great inspiration to us here, I can tell you that much, especially with the way you handle yourselves publicly. I'm sure we'll get to that. Uh, the, I mean, the the first chapter or two of your book frankly frankly are frightening i mean when you look and you and you and you examine the uh the the difference the different experience that your previous generation had in your family and then the experience that you had in this country my god the difference is immense and and you and you must sit back not just on yamashawa but but you know other times during the year you must sit back and think like, my God, what a miracle it is that I even exist after what your parents went through. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, that was part of the thrill with my in my time with Joe being a United States senator running in a national office for me to know that my mother was in Auschwitz-Dachau, my father's slave labor camp, and there I was, their daughter being able to stand up strong and talk to people and all the women who, in particular, who came up and the Secret Service guys patrolling around couldn't believe all of them with their arms, you know, their sleeves up to show me their Auschwitz tattoos. It's, it's, that's why my life has been a blend of everything and I had to write this book for that reason. You know, it's funny. You're, you're a drop familiar with, with my family's history. And, you, you know, the guilt feelings can be, I, I don't want to say, um, uh, you, you know, that they could be crippling. That wouldn't be fair. 
but 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 they sometimes feel like they schlep along with you, uh, having survived, having you know this tremendous transition from what your early life was like as a child and and what you became. And, and I, and as you know, I could relate somewhat to that. Uh, w- would you call it guilt? Would you call it baggage? What is it that we're schlepping along with us as we go through this amazing experience in this country? You know, it's memories direct to survivors and indirectly really felt by children and grandchildren. Yeah. I mean, I have grandchildren who feel it. And, you know, life is a process where I always felt my parents simultaneous to those memories and those concerns were always pushing me to go forward, pushing, 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 and then meeting Joe and joining his life and adventures, experiences, challenges made me really focus totally on moving forward. And that's what we have to do simultaneous to remembering. Oh, well, and we'll get to Joe, believe you me. I know it's an important part of the story. It, it sounded in the book like you're a drop frustrated that your mother didn't write more about her experiences in the horror of, of World War II. But frankly, compared to some other families, you're lucky that she wrote as much as she did. I know. I know. And I'm frustrated on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm lucky she even wrote what she wrote. Yeah. And it's somewhat, the whole thing is when I found it, you know, and after her death and had to translate it at the Holocaust Museum because it was written in Czech. And I think it was written in Czech because she must have written it after, after the war. You know, obviously in the seven, 1970, which is amazing. But there's so many things we don't know. Our parents tell us what they can and what they want. And there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. And no one, our friends, people, they don't. If they haven't gone through something similar, they have no idea. And they think it's weird. You know, I just said, look, I'm going to, my mother in the diary said, I can't write anymore. Now I look to you children. So the only children are me and my brother. Uh, I have so much I want to ask you. If if you're pressed for time, let me know, because I can imagine you're doing... No, no, I made my time for you, because it's been a while, and Joe was saying, oh, how nice. I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine how much media you're doing for this because it's such an important work. Um, and then your father's experience uh, again, another horror story, uh, and so many things about your family's history. The Hasidic angle. You're, you're, oh, you're, I know. I mean, my gosh, you're 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 practically a, you're practically a Satmar Hasid. <laughs> I know. And then on I know. To, and then on top of that, your father's love of Israel before Israel was was even a you know a a, a dream in someone's eye of being a state. He was um, he was like addicted to Zionism. It, it, oh. it, it seemed even his religious life had this Israel component to it. And we would have immigrated from from Europe to Israel right away, but the war was going on, and my mother really wasn't sure. She didn't want to do that because of the war. Plus, she was from another part of, you know, things in terms of Zionism, and the Hashomer Hatzair was looked at as, but it's interesting, because we, when I was in New York City visiting, was in Brooklyn, actually, visiting the... um, 
think it was uh, Munkatya Rebbe, different people. And it's amazing because that's really, those are the kinds of things in the Satna <laughs> Rebbe that my parents emerged out of. I mean, but, when, when the Rebbe's hear your family history, they must be, th- I'm being serious now, they must be thrilled to meet you because between Munkach and Satmer, you have a tremendous amount covered there in terms of Hasidic history. I know, but you know what? Sometimes I think, and that's what I'm afraid of, that some people have become, they've made observance, halacha, everything. And, you know, I'm Shomer Shabbat, I'm kosher, all right. those things. That we know, but sure. they're not going in a modern way, some right. progressive. And so sometimes they don't want to get too close to yeah. people that, you I, know what I mean. Oh, but that's I hear another that. problem, and it's our responsibility to keep pushing forward because, you know. Hadassah Oh, yes, we know. Hadassah Lieberman's with us. The book is called Hadassah, an American Story. Um, so, it, right. So then your father comes to the United States, and it's funny. I just did a conversation where Beryl Wine was uh, – I, I was flattered that he asked that I do one of these video conversations with him. It'll be out in a few weeks. And he pointed out there that if you wanted a job in the rabbinate in the United States in that era – the era when your father came here, you you likely would went to a conservative congregation, and that's oh, and, and literally your literally your father had that experience up in Massachusetts. Yes, and it was. I mean, here he was, a kid who was a kid with payout. You know, school starting at five a.m. Yeshiva, sleeping on his uncle's stove because that's where the yeshiva was, and traveling home for Shabbat for. To his father and mother, and it just was amazing because all of these kinds of influences on them, and then he found himself going to, you know, the modern world, the university, right. Charles University, and his father wasn't going to give him money because right. that was, you know. Look, these were the things that we've evolved through in Judaism. And by the way, and by the way, just to show how your father understood the university scene, he insisted that his daughter Hadassah not go to Boston University, right, and go to right. and go to Stern College because he didn't want the social scene of the United States for you. He wanted an academic uh, uh, arena that would be you know, what he felt was appropriate for a young Jewish girl, and obviously Stern being the way it is, it fit perfectly. Oh, my goodness. When my father took me into BU, I'll never forget that. (laughs) We lived in Massachusetts. And he saw these couches and couples on the couch. He says, I niche for dear. That was it, you know? Not Not for for you. (laughs) Not for me. And I was, you know, I had to go. He said, two years must be at Stern, and then we'll talk. And then, I thought it was the old-fashioned type, you know. And then you switched, obviously, but I have to imagine, in all seriousness, the, the couple of years you were in Stern College probably left a very strong impact on you for the rest of your oh, life. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, because I had, you know, I had been raised in Gardner, Massachusetts, a half hour from New Hampshire, and then to go to, you know, more of a Jewish community of, in New York and to go to Stern College, where everything was very different and lovely was very important. And my daughter, my little baby, who made Aliyah, and she's there with her five sons, Baruch Hashem. Wow. 
she, yeah, 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 and our, you know, son-in-law. And she went to Stern College, and she, you know, she's the tichel head, the whole thing, you know. <laughs> you point, you point that out in the book. <laughs> by the time, you, yeah. by, the, by the time you get to the youngest kid, she's covering her hair, and uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's amazing. The, as, as, it as, as an aside, have you seen them in the last year or not? Yes, thank God. Thank God, is right. Had some stuff to do. We just went and just came back quickly, well, and. Yeah, thank God. Yeah, she's good, and well, they're real. They're ardent Zionists. What the city? And, what city does she live in? She's in Yerushalayim oh, wow. now. She amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that now, was, it's amazing. Now you talk about some of your struggles. Um, you know, you reveal the fact that you're a breast cancer survivor. Uh, many people didn't realize that Joe is not your first husband. You divorced your first husband. In the context of your family's history. And by the way, I may be wrong. I may not play a role at all in this. But when you go, and, and people out there, obviously there are people out there who, who've been through the situation, understand the pain of divorce, especially you had a child already at that point, makes things even more complicated. Th- does the family history make things like that, which are you know not life and death situations, easier to deal with? Or are, are they always complicated? You sort of describe the divorce as like, you know, difficult to get through, but because you had a lot of cooperation around you, it made things easier. Well, that was how I eventually got myself to feel. But divorce is very, very difficult, and people shouldn't be have any naive notions that it isn't. And you have to work hard, and particularly when you want, you have children, and you want to take on a spouse's children, and you want them to feel they're loved and they're bonded. And, you know, I I talk about it in the book. We never did the step word for our children. Right. And that was the deal. You know, I would never have married a man who couldn't totally love my son. Not only that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but not only that, you you made a point of, of not speaking ever in derogatory terms about anybody on the other side of the family and insisted on that from your children. And, and everybody, and obviously everyone knows on paper it's hard to do sometimes, but on paper that's the best approach. You have to do it. You have to respect your children's parents. Even if you have not birthed those children, right. their mother or their father, is it's critical yeah. to accept them. Hadassah Hadassah Lieberman's with us. Now, when one in your situation, I don't know how old you were at the time of the divorce, but very often you might be, you know, someone in your situation might say, am I ever going to find happiness? How soon after the divorce do you meet Joe? Well, I, you know, to think about all these dates. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Joe and I got married at 83, and um, I separated earlier from my former and wasn't too long after, but it was because a girlfriend of mine, um, who I had gone to Stern College with, said, gee, Hadassah, I want to introduce you to someone. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I have no idea, because she was up in New Haven, Connecticut, and I was in Riverdale at that point. And she said, he's a nice man. He's a member of my show, but he um, he's a politician, but... He's, you know, he's okay. He's a good one. She was a little skeptical about any political being. He was what, in the state senate at that time? 
he was running for attorney general. Oh, he was already running for attorney general. Yeah, at that point he was running. And so she said, I'd like to introduce you to him. And she didn't know him that well, but she knew him as a member of Michelle, et cetera. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going up. I went up to her house for Shabbat, and Joe came over and met me. And then he said, oh, would you like to go out Saturday night? So he and I said, okay. And he said, well, I have a campaign fundraiser. I'm not going to be done until about 11 o'clock. Welcome, welcome will, to my world. <laughs> yeah, I'll pick you up um, after Shabbat, and you can drive up with me to that event. And I'm thinking, I said to Joe, I said, well, how do I introduce myself? Oh, as my driver. <laughs> no, that was great. I thought this, this as you say, my entry into the political exactly. world. Exactly. Yeah, welcome to my world of politics. Was the was the wedding in Agudah Shalom? We went to, yeah, that's where he was going. Shout out to, shout but, out to but, our friends in Stanford then, I would guess. No, no, it wasn't Agudah Shalom. That was in Stanford. Right. We were in New Haven. We went to, um, it was Westville. Synagogue, but I, you know, that's no, but not I, them. what I, am I talking about? I was in Riverdale. Don't confuse. Right, but me. I, but I was asking if your wedding to him was in a good show. Yes, my wedding. That's why I was giving a special shout out to our friends in Stanford. <laughs> Oh yeah, we know we know I we know I could have show them very well. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're very special, and we had a you know, and Joe's been there. His whole, you know, he's right. been there his whole life sure. until he went to New Haven. Amazing. Hadassah Lieberman is with us. Um, and then, of course, he uh, wins that race for attorney general, and then he has that incredible victory over Lowell Weicker to become a senator. And he, he starts gaining a reputation nationwide as being one of the nicest people in the United States um, uh-huh. as Senate. I mean, there's, I mean, whoever met him that didn't like him, frankly. And I have to ask you, and I know that you can, it's not fair for you to speak on his behalf, especially on this, but you can give us a little bit of an insight in, in April of 2021. The, the atmosphere in Washington today must be killing him. It must be killing him because I, I view him as somebody who just wants to get along with everybody and respect the political position and the opinion of those across the aisle. Absolutely. You've described Joe perfectly. And, you know, he gets in, he used to get into little uh, trouble when he did that because some people just don't get that and that that's what it takes to run a government right. and to do joint compromising legislation. So what Joe sees today is he's chairman of a group, no labels, which is working hard to pull people together, leaders, political leaders. It's critical that they have problem. They call themselves problem solvers in in Congress uh, that are part of the no labels organization. You know, you and, know. yeah. Go no, ahead. no, I was going to say I'm glad it exists because boy, oh, boy, do we so, need that today? Oh, do we need it? And we just need it in general. There's too much division in our society. Some people don't sit down at the same table and talk to people right. that don't have their views politically or religiously, for that matter. You know, we divide it. You know, one of, there's so many parts of your book I enjoyed, but there are, there are a couple of important stories in your book 
that are, are just you're gonna you're gonna laugh. I think that I found this to be such a uh, a key part of of what you tell us uh, through the book. Um, you talk about nine eleven, and obviously everyone has a nine eleven story. And in your position, you know, <laughs> being closely related to somebody who's a real decision maker in the country at that time, you can imagine. Right. You know, you had certain insight that none of us had. But you're out of town. You got to get back to. You're in Texas. You got to get back to New York, and you end up in a cab. What it sounds like. We don't have to go through the details. People can read it in the book. With, with with you know people who are driving back to New York, obviously people you don't know there, you know it's it's a cab driver taking you and your associate back, and you get to know them obviously because it's a long journey, <laughs> and and by the end of the trip you're inviting them for a tour of Washington D.C. and I just felt it was significant because again you and your husband are so out there when it comes to the importance of communicating with others. These are people from completely different backgrounds than yours, but by the end of this drive, you feel a kinship uh, to them. And I, and I also, and then, and then you toss in the story, which I found fascinating of inauguration day when president George W was you know, eventually inaugurated. And obviously uh, Al Gore and your husband, you know, w- w- did not win that race officially at the end. And then Friday night, mm-hmm. you find yourself in the Gore home. Right. If I have this right, you find yourself in the yeah. home for a what I guess was a Shabbat dinner, essentially. Right. It's a Friday night. Essentially, it's Shabbat, and they go ahead and they shut their phones, their Blackberries, because they know that you and Joe would not dare touch your phone on a Friday night. And I'm saying to myself, my God, what a country we're in. What a country we're in. So the exact opposite of what your parents had in terms of the atmosphere of of neighbors and, and associates that the. That the almost vice, that the almost president of the United States, who hours before uh, realized he's not going to be president of the United States, that this becomes a priority for him on Friday night with the respect and the courtesy that he shows you, I thought was remarkable. Well, you know that story. I'm so glad you told that. What happened was, you know, that was that awful time where decisions weren't being made about the votes. Remember that mm-hmm. whole thing with Florida? Sure. And so Friday night, Joe was on the phone with Al Gore talking about the situation. We didn't know. We were, you know, we had no idea. Were we going to be going to the vice president's house (laughs) or will we be staying in our place? So what happened was Al Gore called back after he finished on the phone and he said to Joe, why don't you come over. So I packed my stuff for Shabbat. I can't, you know, I talk about that candlesticks, all that stuff and put it in a bag and brought it over. And soon as we walk in, Joe asks for a room to Davin because it was Kimat Shabbat. Unbelievable. And he went into this room and I followed him in after and after he finished Davini, he turned around because this was Christmas time. There was a Christmas tree in the corner. And Joe came out. We went to the table. It was the Gores and Donna Brazil who stayed. The others went rushing off to all the stuff they were doing that night. And we did, you know, Shabbat, explain Shabbat and things. And then we sat there having a beautiful dinner i brought my food for shabbat <laughs> and you know paper plates whatever and so there we were with the candles lit and it was it absolutely the way you described it is true 
we never felt any anti-Semitism at all during the campaign. Which is unbelievable. And by the way, and to your credit, because, and, and this is what I said in the intro when I first introduced you this morning, obviously, I mean, you're campaigning. You're campaigning all around the country. Campaigning means eating certain foods, 99% of which Joe is not eating. And campaigning means, you know, doing certain things, 99% of which you're not doing on Friday night and Saturday. And, right. and and you never made a big deal about it. You'd think this would be a national so You'd think there would be, you know, a Twitter feed that'd be paying attention to every little thing you are and are not doing on Shabbos. And you just never made a big deal about it. You never did anything to call attention to anything, never made someone feel uncomfortable because of what our tradition heritage tells us, which I thought was just If someone had to be the Orthodox nominee for Vice President of the United States, Joe Lieberman was the right person. <laughs> you know, it's amazing because I remember so many stories. Also, our first Shabbat, we were in Wisconsin. That's where we assigned to go. And I'll never forget the Lubavitch rabbi came from just, you know, a little bit of a distance yeah. to bring our Friday night dinner, Shabbat lunch before Shabbat. And I said, Rabbi, thank you so much. What can I do to repay you? And he said, you can ask the young woman who's your advanced person to light the Shabbat <gasps> candle. Oh, my gosh. You know, she happened to be Jewish. She happened to be from a home in Florida that it wasn't religious. But asking her to do that touched her. It touched me. You know, those are the moments. And those are the kinds of things that, and then on some Shabbats, we were able to bring our children together and our mothers and, you know, Baruch Hashem. Things are, yeah, very special in that way. And but, don't forget, there was no Twitter. Right, right. People weren't doing telling right. you everything. Right. Now everybody tells you everything, and it's not all right. Right. I, 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 yeah, I was exaggerating when I said there was, you know, why there was no Twitter feed. Of course there was no Twitter, but even today— I think the two of you would have been able to have handled it. Obviously, again, with social media, it would have been different. But still, the dignity that you handled everything with was just amazing. Uh, the forward is written by a gentleman named Joe Lieberman, folks. He writes the forward to the book. He's got a lot of positive and wonderful things to say about the author. And and Megan, <laughs> and Megan McCain, and we know that the Liebermans and the McCains were, yeah, not Jewish, by the way, the McCains. Nonetheless, they were yeah. very close and had tremendous admiration yeah. for each other. Megan writes a beautiful afterword. And um, and uh, I'm, I'm highly recommend. I didn't even we didn't even talk about your whole opinion on what's going on immigration wise, etc. Because obviously your story is one of immigration success. Uh, here's what I bet, and I know we're, we're I'm running out of time here, and I apologize. But here's yeah, what I, 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 I assume, knowing you, that you are very pro immigration and know how this country was built. But you also yeah. want you also want responsible, law abiding legalized people coming into the country and i think that the the chaos that's happening today and the and the you know sh on one side and shut the doors on the other i have a feeling you're you're somewhere responsibly in the middle on this issue oh absolutely look i'm a great believer in immigration obviously this was the country the shores of which open to immigrants yeah. open to those of us who needed a place to go at the same time, we have to make sure that the rules and regulations that are valid 
are looked at and used to make sure that our country continues as the home of the free and the brave. I'll never forget my mother coming close to the Statue of Liberty. She was telling me Emma Lazarus's words right. just got into her. So, oh. Look, we're all immigrants. No question about it. We are all immigrants. Finally, you know what I have to ask you. I have no choice. I, I, I and I'm sure you anticipated this. Yeah. So, does Joe know at this point that in your own house he will always be vice president? <laughs> and I, uh, and I, yeah. and, and you, oh. and, and you know, and I, I don't even know if you started that joke, but you know that the whole world tells it, right? <laughs> I know. Oh God, you know, you, I have to laugh, but you know what? I've been raised in the traditional way, so. There's a little truth in that about <laughs> my behavior at home, but that's so funny. It's so you funny. By the way, on a serious note, it's funny you say that because the other day, you know, I mean, I come from a family where my father was a really powerful, distinguished rabbi, as people know, mm -hmm. but the home was always my mother's. She was in charge of that. If it was a house issue, he deferred to her home. <laughs> he deferred to her, and the, and I think there's something to say about that. That that's the presidential domain of the of the Jewish uh, mother, Jewish homemaker. Oh, yes. But today it's changed a little bit here and there. <laughs> yeah, that's know. true. That's true. I know. <laughs> that is true. And you've got listeners coming from all places. So no we question. support them all, right? No question about it. Everyone's got their thing. And we uh, all we ask is that they handle their lives in responsible manners and represent our people well, as you have done. An absolute delight to speak with you. The book is called Hadassah, An American Story, written by Hadassah Lieberman. I can assume it's available everywhere at this point? Yes, it's and on Internet, you know, all yeah. the usual places. And, sweetie, listen, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your wonderful program, and thank you for taking the time to review my book. I really appreciated this interview. Well, my pleasure. And I always remind your husband that the day that he took over uh, first place in the poll against Lowell Weicker was a day that he was a guest at our show. So I hope I hope that, that this interview brings you the same luck it brought him. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And my best to everyone, okay? Thank you so much, Hadassah. Hadassah Lieberman, everybody. It's a Brandeis University Press book. It is called Hadassah, An American Story, written by the great Hadassah Lieberman. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Just amazing. More coming up. You're listening to a Tuesday morning edition of JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Hadassah Lieberman. Dr. Miriam Knoll of Joma is next as we discuss the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Miriam Knoll on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We have quite a day for uh, women's leadership in our uh, community here at JM and the AM. Not, not done purposely, frankly. Uh, we have the folks from Joma joining us in a moment. We have uh, Hadassah Lieberman with her brand new book at 8 o'clock. And I believe... Linda Spiegel is supposed to join us from the Margaret Teets Rehab Center about the event coming up on the 27th. So we salute uh, many great women in our community who have uh, taken leadership roles and are doing great work, including the folks at Jalma. I had an, uh, an opportunity just a moment ago to tell Dr. Knoll, who's going to join us in a moment, I told her off the air uh, just how what I've said on the air, uh, just how the experience with Joma has, um, has shown us uh, the incredible uh, leadership skills that the people in the healthcare industry have in our community. 
and how much great work they're doing outside of the um, outside of the uh, you know their typical job outside of what they do on a daily basis in terms of reaching out. And um, today, I remind you that if you are a healthcare professional, there is at 9 p.m. Eastern time tonight a special live stream town hall, a virtual live stream town hall called COVID-19 Vaccine and You. It's for healthcare professionals. If you go to joma.org, you'll see a pop-up immediately that lets you register for tonight's event. And in this era of, um, I'd like to say (laughs) post-COVID, I don't know if that would be accurate, (laughs) but in this era of hopefully the tail end of COVID, it is important that healthcare professionals are up to date and getting the latest information. So you have that opportunity coming up later on. Go to joma.org, J-O-W-M-A.org. For information, Joma, of course, is the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. Dr. Miriam Knoll is with us live via telephone, a board-certified radiation oncologist at Advanced Radiation Oncology Services at uh, serves rather at the Montefiore Nyack Hospital in New York. She's president of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. She's a uh, Forbes Healthcare contributor, writes to the American Society of Clinical Oncology, Connection, and numerous other media outlet serves as associate senior editor of the American Society of Radiation Oncology's peer-reviewed journal Advances in Radiation Oncology. And uh, Dr. Miriam Knoll joins us live via telephone. A pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to tell you, I'm a huge fan <laughs> through my many years of training and early commutes. Uh, you were, you know, you always accompanied me on my on my commute. So thank you, thank you. I appreciate that very much. I would assume people in your professional, when they're doing these uh, all nighters, they need a little excitement to keep them awake early in the morning. So I hope we were able to exactly to provide that exactly. for you. Yeah, you, yep. you find so it's really an honor to speak with you directly. I appreciate that. You find people in your profession tuning in at strange hours of the uh, day and night. Uh, Doctor Null, I told you off the air. I'll tell you um, a part of it on the air. Uh, your organization, I, I heard this from a couple of listeners yesterday, ironically enough, uh, your organization is doing a tremendous amount to alert people about the importance of the COVID-19 vaccine, its efficacy, its recommendation, uh, meaning JOMA's recommendation that people uh, get the vaccine and contribute to community and, of course, greater uh, community um, uh, herd immunity. And um, one of the things that we've learned through this experience, we'll talk about tonight's event and, of course, we'll talk about the vaccine, but one of the things we've learned from this experience with Joma is just how many topics you and the leaders and the lay people in the organization are undertaking. I mean, it's amazing how much information there is for so many sensitive issues in our community. And look, you're obviously familiar with you know radiation oncology. When it mm-hmm. when it comes to oncology and when it comes to so many other departments in the medical field. There are so many sensitivities to our community. If one would just sit and and start making a list of things to be concerned about in each category, we are a unique community. Does it feel sometimes like it's impossible to keep up with all of our special needs and all of our special situations? So I I have to say that, you know, the way that we've been able to grow at such an incredible pace and offer incredible content that's up-to-date and also geared towards the Orthodox community is really only because our incredible volunteers. You probably know this already, you know, we're a non-for-profit organization. We were founded two years ago in 2019. We have uh, almost 300 members of Orthodox women physicians, 
trainees, medical students, and pre-medical students, and everyone volunteers their time. Nobody gets paid, nobody gets a stipend, nobody gets anything. But, you know, I part of it is who they are as people are volunteers and also their passion for sharing health education. So, you know, when they go to work, and I myself have a full-time job, I'm a radiation oncologist, <laughs> yeah. I do this, you know, as my volunteer work, right. right? So, you know, when you're speaking with a firm person, they, yes, yes, they're a person, and yes, their health, you know, concerns are going to be, you know, not necessarily different in terms of curing their cancer or, you know, their women's health concerns or COVID vaccines, they're instinctively just about health, but the way that we want to speak to them and explain things to them is going to be very specific, right? Yeah, 100%. So, and just, yeah. the, just the COVID experience taught us that. If you think yeah. about if you think about the questions that had to go to rabbis and the situations that you yeah. as healthcare professionals became aware of in the hospital, not just for yourselves, but obviously yeah. for the patients as well. I mean, the list was endless. Dr. Miriam Knoll is with us, president of JAMA. Now, uh, you have the event tonight, which we'll talk about. How did Sunday night's event go, the one that was specifically uh, for college teachers, doulas, and mikvah attendants? It, it went amazingly well. We had hundreds of attendees, registrants. We had, you know, college teachers, doulas, um, you know, mikvah attendants from literally all over the world. So all over the United States, Canada, Australia, Israel, Belgium, wow. South Africa. Um, we had. That's, an, that's another thing. At, I apologize to interrupt yeah. you. That's another thing we ne- that we never, meaning I never considered. And that is that this is a global effort. You're hearing from healthcare professionals everywhere. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is actually not the first time. So, you know, the this event on Sunday that was geared specifically to, you know, educating, you know, um, mixed attendants, two of college teachers, was actually a follow-up to our work right. a year ago when um, the COVID pandemic first started and people were obviously very concerned about going to the mikvah. Was it safe? Was it something that should be done? Should, who can go? Who can't go? All these things came up. And one of our board members, Dr. Bracheva Lerner Maslow, had a conference with worldwide a mikvah professionals and rabbinim to go over the health concerns. And let me be clear, we are not an organization that paskins halacha. We don't, um, you know, um, we don't weigh in in halacha except by discussing the medical, you know, basis for these types of things. Meaning if there's a question, you know, for a rav, and they have a question about the medical issues, we'll weigh in on the, on the medical issues. But we do not pass in halacha or discuss halacha or offer halacha or anything like that yeah, in ju- any of our webinars. Just the opposite. You're calling you know, questions from so many who are on the front lines and then bringing them to responsible rabbis to, to deal with them in a halachic manner. And, and Frank, yeah, again, and- you know, that's, that's up to them. You know, again, like... If anyone has a lot of questions, they know where to go. That's right. not us. Right. No, <laughs> but, I, I hear. No, we're able to bring the expertise to right. these discussions, that, and we understand the issues that come up. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. Immediately, that you know, the mikvah issue was very, very large, and that's why we put out mikvah guidelines. We shared them with you know, mikvahs all over the world, and they were able to see you know what needs to be done from a medical perspective to make it safe for the mitzvah to continue. Dr. Miriam Noll is with us. Yeah, no question about it. That was my whole point. My whole point was that because you're on the front lines 
and you can yeah. bring that expertise. I mean, rabbis must be consulting with people like you all the time just to under- understand what's happening in that operating room, yeah. understand what's happening in the radiation room, understand what's happening in the Absolutely. treatment room, et cetera, et cetera, and, of course, in the patient's room as well. Uh, JM in the AM, jauma.org, J-O-W-M-A.org. If you go to the top of the page, you'll see there a tab. Um, an education tab, EDU, and there you'll have a whole host of information about the COVID-19 vaccine, which, of course, we'll get to in a second. Now, tonight's event is about the COVID-19 vaccine, but it's specifically for healthcare professionals. What is your – and we're recommending to anybody who is a healthcare professional, go to jauma.org, J-O-W-M-A.org. There's a pop-up that lets you register immediately for tonight's event. Now, Dr. Noll, what are you expecting? What's the goal for tonight? So the goal for tonight is to train – Healthcare professionals, which includes, as we know, physicians, nurses, PAs, therapists, um, anyone who is either a healthcare professional or a healthcare professional to be, and help them get the answers that they've been getting from their patients, from their friends, from their colleagues, that they're comfortable sharing information about the vaccine. We know that everyone's discussing the vaccine. Very often, these conversations can be difficult. People come from different perspectives, and there's a lot of distrust in the vaccine, in the medical community, in government, in our leaders, and that is absolutely understandable. So what we want to do is offer information in a way that will be easily understood by everyone who attends, again, patients, friends, colleagues, anyone who's going to ask questions about the vaccine. We have an incredible panel of experts that we've invited. Um, Dr. Valerie Altman is an OBGYN. She'll be speaking, of course, about all the questions people have about fertility concerns, who should get the vaccine, pregnant women, nursing women, all those kinds of questions. Dr. Mark Mulligan is director of the vaccine center at NYU. He actually ran many of the trials to get the vaccine approved. He has incredible expertise about how the vaccine was designed. And obviously that's very important in terms of understanding why the vaccine is safer than getting infected with COVID-19. And our third speaker is actually a PhD lawyer, Dr. Dorit Rubenstein-Reese, and she does research and is an international expert on vaccine hesitancy. Wow. Unbelievable. Uh, the vaccine hesitancy, it's a topic that comes up every time that uh, someone from JOMA is on. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. for the reasons you just mentioned, there is a, a tremendous push in our community, and for good reason, because there's belief in the efficacy of the vaccine. And, um, and we've spoken to, you know, to people who've actually been on the front lines of approving the vaccine uh, here on this program. Uh, but as you also mentioned, there is a, you know, a question mark when it comes, and, and you're, you're not... How did you put? I don't remember how you put it, but you can understand that people do not trust government, and, yeah, and the, and right? And these and these days, and these days, it's quite a concern. Uh, all that having been said, I assume you fully endorse and recommend to anybody and everybody again within normal health protocol. Obviously, there are exceptions, and you know the people should ask if they are in an exceptional situation. Uh, you're endorsing that people should take this vaccine. It can only add to the immunity in our community and the immunity in the general. Uh, community. Um, yes, that, that's, yes, absolutely. That, I, I think obviously, that's, there there are rare circumstances where somebody's physician would tell them not to take the vaccine. That would be, you know, very unusual. But you know, for everybody else, absolutely recommending you know the vaccine. But that being said, we understand why people are hesitant. Right. 
And, uh, so, and, and, and that, that's why we're looking to share information so that people's concerns are addressed. Yeah, and our goal is to make sure that people have as much information as possible. They feel, rightfully so, that they are making the decision, but really with a lot of info and as much as possible. Tonight, uh, the uh, the live stream virtual town hall is specifically for healthcare professionals. You'll be updated on all of this from your perspective, and we hope that you then join uh, the leaders of the healthcare professional community in our community in spreading the word about the efficacy of the vaccine and how important it is for as many people as possible to get it. If there are patients out there with specific questions, we encourage you, of course, to address those as well, not just to go out there and make blanket statements, but to be there in order to service the needs of those who are uh, in our community. You could register for the event. There'll be a pop-up at joma.org, J-O-W-M-A.org, for tonight's event. It is a platform created to share medical education regarding COVID-19 vaccination safety. All information provided by community leaders in the medical field, as Dr. Knoll outlined a very impressive list of presenters tonight. Dr. Knoll, anything you'd like to add? I just wanted to add, you know, one component of this, which is that, you know, we're not looking to just tell everyone, you know, yes, the vaccine is the best thing in the world, and, which it is, but, you know, and you're <laughs> crazy if you don't want to take it. That, that's not our goal. Right. Our goal is to share information and be a resource for people. So, you know, you had mentioned the event on Sunday. We've gotten over 30 requests already, please send us more information wow. from, you know, attendees so that people can share. And we've created resources, informational materials, educational materials. We're putting together posters that we'll be mailing for doctor's offices, you know, mikvaos. So anyone that wants resources and wants to share resources about the COVID vaccine should please contact us at vaxfacts at joma.org. That's V-A-X. Fact, the F-A-C-T-S at joma.org because, you know, it's hard for people to find credible information. So what we're doing is really collating those resources for people so that they, you know, don't have to do the work themselves. And, you know, for those who, who are, you know, hesitant and say, well, and, and I hear this a lot because the anti-vaxxer community is quite strong and they, they're, they're bullies. Um, there's really no other way to put it. You know, we've gotten, you know, tremendous, you know, backlash from, you know, anti-vaxxers. You know, to be honest, we don't care. Right. <laughs> We're doctors, you know. So when, you know, I'm an oncologist. When I meet a patient who, you know, has ignored their breast cancer for 10 years and now, unfortunately, you know, it has a cancer that can't be um, cured, you know, I understand, you know, there are people who don't believe in Western medicine. There's, right. there's nothing that we can do at that point, right? But the, the answer is that we need to at least meet people where they are. Right. The anti-vaxxers are not going to stop. They're sharing bad information. They're looking to scare people. They're, 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 what they're doing is really evil. They're really looking to hurt people. So we have to at least meet them, and also offer good information. We can't just ignore it and say, well, you know, whoever doesn't want the vaccine is crazy. No, there are questions, there are concerns, and that's why we're going to, you know, meet people where they are and offer them information so that they understand. Look and we've already gotten tremendous feedback from people saying, thanks for answering my questions. I'm going to get vaccinated. Look, I know that, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you get this feeling when uh, when, when you're supervising radiation and uh and um, chemotherapy treatments, uh, you know, when, when something bad for you is going into one's body, 
you know, it, it's mm-hmm. hard to understand that it's really the best thing for you. And I think that that's where the exactly. an, the anti-vaxxers take advantage of that. That's something, you know, that that's identified as the disease is going into your body in whatever responsible right. way it is. And, you right. know, it's hard to convey or hard to believe in certain cases that that could be in the long run beneficial for everybody. But I think over the last 150 years, I think that's been proven, you know, countless times. So. Oh, absolutely. You know, there are people saying things. I mean, it's hard for me to say this out loud because it's really just so um, insulting and disgusting, honestly. People saying things like, you know, anyone who is either taking the vaccine or um, telling people to get vaccinated, they're comparing them to Nazis, right. to Dr. Mengele. I mean, well, once, are, once you hear the horrible things to say. Right. Once My you... grandparents were in Auschwitz. For people to say things like that, when somebody comes from our own community, they've met Holocaust survivors to say things like that i mean that's right it's, one it's, once it's you unforgivable once you hear the desperation of name calling and bullying you know that that nobody's on the other side who wants to just present facts and have an intelligent conversation no question yeah. about it but i have to tell you how many you know um grateful people have reached out saying you know i was wondering why people were saying things like that about the vaccine and the nazis i was wondering you know where was it coming from? Was it true? Right. And and they said, thank you for saying that it's absolutely false, ridiculous, insulting, and just a horrible thing to say. So, you know, there, there is, you know, a tremendous value in simply saying the truth. No question Even if we're not going to convince everyone, but just offering the facts and saying the truth. How long is your term as president? Um, so I'm actually one of the founders of the organization, so um, I'm as here long, for the long haul. As, lo- as long as you want, I guess. <laughs> when, it com- <laughs> when it comes to organizations, usually if the person wants to stick around, nobody's objecting. Simple as that. Uh, Dr. Miriam Null reminds you that tonight is the Healthcare Professionals live stream regarding COVID-19. Go to joma.org, J-O-W-M-A.org. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Tuesday morning broadcast, JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Dr. Miriam Knoll of JOMA. Mike Bain is president of the OU. The OU and synagogue services at the OU is trying their best to find ways to get people to come back to shul. We discussed this with Mike Bain on JM and the AM. Here he is on JM Rewind on the Nahum Sigal Network. So I mentioned earlier the Orthodox Union has, has re- you know, it's not just that they're offering grants, which is great, because believe me, a lot of synagogues need those grants right now. They've had a rough year, a lot of synagogues. So believe me, there are plenty of synagogues who need the grant, which is great. But I was just telling Maish Bain off the air, and I'm going to introduce him in a second, that um, what the OU has done to call attention, not just the grant and the effort, believe me, that's wonderful, but just the fact they've called attention to what I think is a major problem coming out of uh, this pandemic is uh, is fantastic. Because there has to be, over the next year, there has to be a big push. Parents, grandparents, rabbis, leaders of all types. We need a big push to get people to come back to shul. Very simple. That's where we all belong. That's really where we all belong. President of the OU, the Orthodox Union, and tremendous friend of ours here at JM and the AM is Mike Bain, and he's with us live via telephone. An honor to welcome you back to JM and the AM. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Nathan. I appreciate that. We'll we'll do the grant in a minute. And like I said, believe me, plenty of synagogues need those grants now because a lot of them have had a rough year. But just the fact that the OU is um, shining the light on such an important issue is, I think, wonderful. It's a terrible problem, but it's wonderful that you're out there 
talking about it and urging people to help solve it. Uh, the reality is, it's very simple, Mike. The reality is that uh, we as a community, especially here in this area, I'm sure other parts of the country have enjoyed it as well, we as a community have made great progress over the last 20, 30 years in getting people to pay attention to Tefillah B'Tzibor, getting people to pay attention to being in shul uh, on a regular basis. Shabbos, Yontif, men, women. I mean, we've done. I think we've done a great job. And there are communities with the thriving minyanim on a daily basis. And the pandemic... Uh, aside from taking us out of our shuls and making us, you know, homesick for our shuls, unfortunately, it got a lot of people used to not being in shul. And then, frankly, uh, it, it's gotten a lot of people used to not davening in what is a, let's say, proper, I'll take blame for the word, I won't put words in your mouth, a proper Jewish atmosphere. Believe me, I get the convenience and the importance of davening outside in a park or in someone's backyard, but ideally... You know, one should be in a real sanctuary with an Aaron Kodesh and a proper environment for their davening. So tell me about the genesis of this idea. Obviously, it ends with asking people to apply for these grants, and we'll go through that. But at what point did you say that your organization must be a leader to get people back to shul? Well, you know, Nachum, I, I agree with you entirely that there has been enormous progress in our community throughout the United States on enhancing the relationship between the Orthodox community and attending shul, both on Shabbos and during the week. And the pandemic has had a effect on slowing down, if not reversing that trend. The, the Orthodox Union does, on a regular basis, review the condition of American Orthodoxy and try to identify dimensions that we could be assistance in. And I think your point is extremely well taken. The, the, the benefit of the grants is really a side point right. to the purpose of the project. The right. purpose of the project is to get people to start thinking among their shoals and outside of their shoals, what could the community do to begin to return to an enormous trend that was on the rise that has been reversed. And by creating this the buzz among shoals, and we've gotten already over 70 proposals, wow. and we expect by the time we hit the deadline next Friday we'll have way over 100 just that discussion within a shul to talk about what could we be doing to get people back in, that alone is the objective we're trying to accomplish that has already been achieved. Yep. And the community benefits from Tila B'Tzibor prayer with a minion in many, many regards. Some of them are direct spiritually. I mean, we know that our rabbis tell us that the prayers prayed together as a community have much greater potency in Shemaim in heaven. But there's also social dimensions. So when a person begins their day before going to their office or their hospital or their factory, first beginning with a group of Jews talking to God, the entire day is different. Yep. And when you're praying at home, although, of course, God listens to the prayers of us individually, it's not the same. And we're losing that dimension, which is a whole trajectory of our day that we want to get back on track with. Yeah, I, I always say when I daven alone, it's like 1% of the davening experience, but Seaborn, of course, I'm no rabbinic authority. Maybe the percentage is higher, as you just indicated. God obviously listens, but it's just not, it's not the same. And, you know, we have a problem, folks. We have a problem. And I you know how I know the problem. I know the problem because my Amen Yeheshme Rabbah is not nearly as as um, effective, in my opinion, and and doesn't have the same effect on me, you know, outside uh, on a regular basis as it does in an actual shul. And I know that that sounds you know crazy to some people, but I'm telling you, it is a different feeling. Um, saying Barhu is a different feeling, even when you have a minion, but you're not in a sanctuary. And I've always, you know, I understand. You know, people have safety concerns. I get it, and and it may even you know being outside the sanctuary may actually bring you know more people to a minion because of the 
uh, of the whole situation with the outdoor um, uh, minyanim. But um, the bigger problem, as Mike Bain is pointing out, the bigger problem is that there are people who are actually staying home. And, you know, Mice, you just mentioned 70 applications, which is great. And and I really do believe it has nothing to do with the grants, that the effort was just, you know, we got to get people to start focusing on this. I'm not putting you on the spot, and I'm sure there's a committee that's going to analyze it. Have you seen any creative ideas that rabbis have had about getting people back to shul? People apply for grants. Do they have good concepts attached to it that you think can effectively you know, increase the population in shul? I, I think there are many, and we're going to try to ferret through them and identify those that are most potent. I'll, I'll share with you one that came from Israel, actually, as a suggestion, from a very uh, prominent teacher, Rebbe, in Israel, that over the last year and a half, there have been many, many simchas that, as we all know, have been celebrated with small groups rather than the entire community. Right. And perhaps now it's a, an opportunity to go back into shul and take a whole bunch of weddings that were celebrated the prior year, or bar mitzvahs, or bat mitzvahs, and create Shabbosim in which those are celebrated, and all the community Ooh. is brought back into Shul to celebrate Ooh, collectively. what a I, great idea! I thought that was an incredible idea. Oh, what a great idea! I actually heard of somebody who made a bar mitzvah celebration for their 14-year-old son uh, just a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. He couldn't lane last year, so they made a bar mitzvah celebration and laned this year. I mean, why not? Oh, what a great yep. what a great idea that is. Anything that could bring people back into the environment of a synagogue is so vital and so important. And like I said, we spent a lot of decades building up to this point where people would take it seriously in terms of going to shul on a daily basis. And not just Shachar, it's Mincha Marv as well. I'm I am amazed at how many people still gather, thank God. I mean, maybe not as many in offices now, maybe now again in the backyard scenes and, you know, outdoor park settings. But I'm amazed how many people are still uh, concerned about making sure to daven three times a day with a minion. Look, I'll tell you, uh, when I went back in the olden days when there was such a concept of travel, <laughs> I used to travel around the country for the Orthodox Union. One of the real characteristics of a community was whether or not they had a late Marev in the right, winter right. for people who were not home in time for the Marev at the regular, regular sundown time. And you saw communities, it was amazing to me, as you say, I would go into a, a shul at 10 o'clock at night, and there'd be 30, 40 men in a rather small community yep. coming to Dava Marv. That's a vibrancy that, that reverberates through a family, through a community, and we're, we have to make sure that we continue in that direction. Yeah, no question about it. Mike Spain is with us. We're talking about the Orthodox Union. Here's the, I should have it here in front of me, I assume. Yeah, here's the grant situation. Uh, grants of up to $5,000 will be awarded to the program selected will be administered to the OU's Department of Synagogue Initiatives, which is an amazing department, by the way. Synagogue's interested in applying for the grant. Uh, it's uh, ou.org slash grant21. Simple as that. ou.org slash grant21. Uh, they're due April 30th, so you have a week to put this together. The awards will be announced May 14th, so you don't have to wait long to find out uh, who will be awarded the grants. And that is the financial benefit that a shul can get uh, if they're making an effort to, to bring people uh, back to shul, but again, uh, whether whether you get a financial benefit or not, all community leaders of all ages should be doing everything in their power 
to get the shuls completely reopened and to attract men and women to come on Shabbos, to get people to come during the week, to make the minyanim as strong as possible. In some cases, people are just going to you know, slap the minyanim on the schedule and just you know, in- encourage people one by one to come and help make the minyan, whatever it might be. And that might be what it takes to schlep people one by one. And one other thing, Maish, by the way, and someone mentioned this to me the other day, and I was so saddened by it. I love when I, when I meet a, um, a young couple and I am told that, you know, basically every day since Sheverbrook has the husband's been in shul. And forget about COVID. There's nothing to do with COVID. And I say to myself, wow. And, and it's funny, for a guy that unfortunately misses <laughs> chakras of the minion too often because of my job, it's funny that I'm saying this, but I have given speeches around the around this area, you know, to different settings about tefillah, a, 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 you know, a topic that is so dear to my heart about prayer. And, and, and I love that. When I hear of a young couple, and someone says, yeah, they're married half a year. The guy's been in shul every morning. They're married two years. He never missed it. To me, that is the basis of the start of a bias neman by Yisrael. That is the basis of the start of, 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 um, of establishing a real Jewish family among our people, even before there are kids on the way. Uh, I, I have a feeling you agree with me, but that, what the sad part is I have heard of so many young men in their 20s and 30s, who were making an effort to get to shul as often as possible, who basically have given up on the concept since this pandemic started. And I don't know if there are any synagogues out there with a specific initiative for your grant aimed at those young couples, but if there is, I think it's a really important age group to focus on. Yeah, that's no, no question about it. And there, there's a tangential dimension to this entire issue, which we have to talk about, and that is the strength of the shul as a community center. Yep. And the, and the many, many roles that the shul plays, that if there is a weakening of the commitment of individuals to the shul, all of those services that we rely on throughout the year, both youth programming, women's involvement, women coming to shul, I mean, although there have been some backyard minyanim that women would be invited to join with the mechitza, right. by and large they're not. And women have in particular not have an opportunity to return to shul, and they also have an important role in coming to shul. And shul also plays other chesed, benevolent programs in the community, whether it's bikuchol and visiting the sick on an organized basis, or many, many other programs. We need to have the shul strong, and we need people to be part and parcel of the rejuvenation of the shul after the pandemic's conclusion. No question about it. I would also add, and you know, we did, we did the big chesed initiative before Pesach here, and uh, just encouraging people to do good deeds for others. If you want to be involved and help other people, sometimes you have no choice but to find out from other people in shul and from the rabbi, you know, who's in need, who 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 can I help, who can you know I be there for, and it just you know uh, you know it's it, it's sort of a, a you know a ripple effect. You walk into shul, not only are you automatically starting your day, like you said, with a certain attitude, a certain atmosphere, and by doing certain mitzvos, which seem endless when one is in shul, but in addition to that, the opportunities of doing things for other people in the community you know, goes up exponentially because you are you know, surrounded by others who care and others who want to help out. So all of this is so vital and so important. It's not just about going and listening to the rabbi speak. And it's not just about going and being there for the minion. It's going, uh, it, it, as you just said, to to reestablish the synagogue as the centerpiece of our community. And and I also, I'll, I'll add one other thing, Marsh. I hope the larger Jewish communities don't look at this, you know, th- that it's not as vital for them. You know, in a smaller Jewish community, it's an easy argument to make how that synagogue is you know, vital to the future of the community. Often in areas like ours geographically, 
people will be like, oh, well, you know, what do we need the larger shuls? What do we need these, you know, daily centers of gathering for from Inyanim when there's so many, you know, makeshift ways we could go about it? I, I think I, I fear that as well, that in places with a large Jewish population, they may not take it as seriously. Yeah, no, no question. That's a valid perspective. Look, I think the, the, the identity that we develop by being part of a kahila, by being part of a community, affects our entire self-image and our connection to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism. And being part of a shul is a vital part of that identity that we develop, not only for ourselves, but for our children, our spouse, and our broader family. So that's why we have our celebrations in shul. That's why we have our bar mitzvahs and our ufrups in shul, because we need to be part of a community, a real community, in order to have the sense of identity of who we are and where we belong. Mike, you know what you just reminded me of? I used to, I used to always say that half the time I go to shul, half, right, 50%, and I go a lot, half the time I go to shul, it's because I watched my father go to shul with 105 fever. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you could appreciate that. And, and by the way, everyone, as you think about your children and grandchildren, think about that. Think about the role model you're being when you go to shul under all circumstances or w- within all reasonable circumstances. Uh, you, you're, you're, you, will, you will be enhancing the next few generations just by undertaking that. For that reason alone, Marsh, it's a good idea to go to shul. Forget, forget, about, yeah, actual, forget, forget about actual tefillah, but just in, in terms of building a good Jewish family, it's a pretty important thing to do. Absolutely. Anyway, Meish Bain, president of the OU. It's very simple. There are grants available, but as Meish confirmed for me, and I conjectured earlier, uh, this initiative has been undertaken just to bring attention to a really serious problem. And if you don't think it's serious yet in your community, it can get very, very serious. You've got to take our word for it on this. Uh, Grants up to $5,000 for synagogues and programs that are selected. Uh, They'll be administered by the OU's Department of Synagogue Initiatives. That's until April 30th to submit OU.org slash Grant 21. OU.org slash Grant 21. The awards will be announced quickly uh, by May the 14th. Mike Spain, I thank you for this. I think you've uh, really, you and your organization have uh, brought a really important uh, um, uh, problem uh, to the forefront, and we appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you for partnering and getting this word out. 100%. I hope people listen. Everybody young and old. You got to get back to shul. Sim- it's as simple as that. For all the reasons we mentioned, you got to get back to shul. Kudos to everybody who's going to get a lot of credit up there for davening in the snowstorms. I'm not kidding about that. The scene, even last night, even last night, the outside minion near uh, near my home, it, it was it was 30 mile an hour winds, and, and frankly, it was freezing for an April for an April evening. But we got to get back to shul. We got to get back to shul. Um, and that's a Shabbos and that's during the week. We got to get back to shul and, um, whatever you could do, everybody out there and the young leadership, you have the power more than anybody to convince your colleagues to get back on a daily basis. If you're in your twenties and thirties, boy, can you have an effect in your community on your group of friends? Start with one of the ideas that I always talk about in my tefillah, in my prayer, uh, presentation, convince your friends to go once a week. Be the Tuesday guy. We need you for a minion every Tuesday. You be the Thursday guy. And you'll see how that once a week changes their lives and then how the you know, five weekdays a week will change their lives. And hopefully they're, they're already in shul Shabbos and Sunday, hopefully. But we need to get back to shul. And I'm begging everybody out there to please do everything in your power to, to understand the seriousness of the problem 
And yeah, your backyard minion may be really convenient and it may be an amazing 90-minute Shabbos morning tefillah with a great kiddish. I get it. But your acti- you, you t- and it may not have a negative effect on you at all. But, but that type of minion existing is keeping people who need shul out of shul. Please, please think about that. Please. Uh, whenever we talk about davening, I'm always, <laughs> I always get passionate. That's what happens when you grow up uh, loving shul and you raise children who Baruch Hashem love shul. Thursday morning broadcast, JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Mike Spain, president of the OU. Next up is Rabbi Hart Levine, recently joined Mizrahi RZA, Religious Zionists of America. He is doing quite a job with a specific generation in our community. My conversation with Rabbi Hart Levine is next on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Oh, by the way, speaking of that morning, Friday, the uh, the 30th of April, Lagba Omer, our presenting sponsor, our friends at Mizrahi. RZA. Go to rza.org slash journey home. rza.org slash journey home for the latest information regarding their journeys, their trips coming up to Israel, one of which we hope to be on next month, frankly. With us live via telephone, uh, the person who's been brought in by, uh, by the RZA, Mizrahi here in the United States, uh, to be uh, in charge of senior education, leadership, and learning, or by Hart Levine. Rabbi Hart Levine is talented and passionate about connecting Jews to meaningful Jewish communities and college campuses around America. He is deeply inspired by the ideals of religious Zionism and has taught classes on the Torah of Rav Kook. For the past decade, he's accumulated an unparalleled breadth and depth of knowledge about Jewish life as a spiritual leader and social entrepreneur. He is a uh, musmach of Ritz. He is um, he is a... Um, he has, run, he has started and has ran a series of outreach programs for college students and young professionals with the OU, including Heart to Heart and Yavne. And he also serves as a founding rabbi of the base community, a, a synagogue that has, a, has had a tremendous impact up in Washington Heights, New York. And as I've said before with the, him on the air, uh, I am someone who appreciates great Jewish leadership, and it is uh, something that he exemplifies. Rabbi Hart Levine, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Yeah, thank you so much, Nachum. It's uh, a really, uh, really an honor to be here. I appreciate that. I, I think Mizrahi made a, a, an amazing. You know, here here's my assessment, and I don't want to be unfair to the um, uh, to the leadership of Mizrahi for the past many decades because they have had effective leadership and have always been a. Uh, an effective organization, uh, both in the United States and around the world. But uh, there's no question that when uh, Rav Daron Peretz uh, uh, joined uh, and or took over World Mizrahi, uh, we saw things being taken to a different level. And I think it's obvious that as we look at the RZA and uh, Mizrahi based in the United States, now under the leadership of Ari Rakoff, um, that now we are seeing the same thing happen, a really good organization uh, moving forward and and becoming as 2021 as possible. And frankly, Rabbi Hart Levine, I think your hire, you being brought into the organization, is a really important part of that. Do you see an incredible landscape in front of you? Do you see uh, that with the RZA, uh, you can reach an incredible uh, number of uh, of youth in this country and really instill some phenomenal religious Zionism in them? Yeah, I think definitely. I think uh, 
I mean, it's probably a combination of the timing, the leadership, and like the long history of Mizrahi. But but there's definitely a sense like everyone we speak to is like, wow, Mizrahi is really coming back. Yeah. Um, I mean, right, not that it's been away, but I feel like there's something about, I don't know, maybe, maybe like coronavirus is sort of shaking everything up. People are sort of rethinking their lives. So I think, I think there's really a lot of potential here. I wonder, actually, if the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, caused a restart or a reset for a lot of organizations and efforts. That's interesting that you, that you say that. How, how does one become an expert in a specific generation? You know, that's how you're being painted. In fact, I think I have a blurb here. <laughs> i got to read this to you. And uh, you know, I say this. Uh-oh. I say this with the greatest respect. But it's you know, to be re- here, you're recognized as a as an ex nationally as an expert in understanding the next generation age group. For instance, graduating high school uh, seniors through the gap year, through college and graduate school, and young professionals. How does one become an expert in how to deal with and reach that generation? Right. Okay. So first of all, I, I'm I'm not going to claim that I'm the expert. I've, I've I've definitely worked in this field for a while, but there are definitely people who, who probably are, are more expert than me. But I think, um, I mean, I think I've just been, I've been, uh, I've been working with this population for a while, for the last, uh, I guess, since I was a college student, um, and ever since I've been, I've been going to Israel and, 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 and uh, speaking at gap year programs for the last 12 years. Um, so I've been, I've, been, I've been visiting college campuses. I think the last 10 years I've, I have uh, spent Shabbat on around 40 different college campuses wow. uh, all, all across America. So just from working with, with students, I've, I've worked with hundreds, thousands of students on colleges all over, um, and not just one year on one campus, but really right. over, um, over a decade on a whole variety of campuses. So I got to see really the variety of the challenges and also the opportunities and, and, and what people were looking for. Um, so I think that's what sort of like helps guide me to where I am now. You know, it's funny. I'm an old guy and I look at someone like you and say, boy, do you have a lot of competition? You know, the, the generation that we're talking about, let's, you know, for argument's sake, say, you know, I don't know, 18 to 35 or whatever, you know, number, whatever numbers you want to use. I mean, you're in competition with every media source out there. Every every content platform out there. I mean, just to reach There's these new ones every year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just to re- some would say they're new ones every day. <laughs> and ju- and just to reach that population, just to be heard, just to be noticed by that population, where they're being inundated, you know, from so many different avenues, is a difficulty. That's why I say, if you're able to have an effect and actually, you know, convince people that you know certain certain paths are worth exploring, that's a victory in and of itself. Yeah, I think I think one thing I'll say about that is that as there's this influx of um, social media things and all content, and and I think what happens is people become so like inundated with that that sometimes they, some people just like see that all as as noise. And, and I think with all with all the stuff out there, people are looking for something meaningful. Um, and I, you know, there definitely is you know there are meaningful content. There, there's meaningful content on different platforms and and, and media, social media. But I think people are, are looking for things that are real. I think definitely, yeah. um, like uh, going back to COVID, people uh, being on a screen for so long, I think that's really um, made people look for you know real, personal, in-person sort of like meaningful connection. Yeah, it's funny because now I'm getting what you're saying that you know in in the old days, so to speak, you know ha- half of what people were presented with, even though it was much less, was probably real, and half of it was you know stuff you'd want to discard today. I think you're pointing out that you know way over ninety percent of the stuff is is 
is stuff that most people that age would just want to discard. They don't think is real. They don't think is important. And they spend their time, you know, looking for what's important, looking for what really touches them and changes them. Right. I mean, I, I guess that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Right. They say it used to be like uh, back when back back when like uh, this is this before my time. I don't know before your time. Back <laughs> back when fax machines were first invented. Right. Like when you got a fax, it was like, oh my goodness, someone sent me a fax. Like right. when email started. Wow, someone sent me an email. Now you get. Now no one even looks at their email anymore because right. it all goes to spam. So then there has to be like, okay, so how do you actually make meaningfully connect with someone? And I think that has to be through meaning, through purpose, through community, through sort of like real connection. You know, one of the things where my heart, Levine, is with us, one of the things we discovered with our work with the Nefesh Benefesh and, and other organizations is the incredible uh, job that many educators and parents in the non-Orthodox world did in terms of instilling a, a Zionist attitude and a Zionist passion in their students and children. And I have to imagine that that's something you've taken notice of, that there is uh, both among the Orthodox, thank God, and among those who are not as ritually connected, uh, an amazing spark of Zionism in a lot of American Jews. A lot of us often you know, fall into the trap of bemoaning the fact that there's so many people who are disconnected. Are you finding that there are a lot of connected college-age students out there? For sure, for sure. There are always people who, who, um, who see, I mean, I guess, you know, part of it's your perspective. There's always people who are going to be not connected, right. but I think that there are so many people, there are probably more people now going, going to Israel for a gap year than probably ever before, um, maybe in the history of the Jewish people. Um, and so I think that there, that there are a lot of people who are inspired. And, and the work that we do is not starting from nothing. It's, it's really built on the backs of the institutions, the teachers, and all, all of the infrastructure in Israel, in America, that's working to inspire uh, the next generation of American Jews. Yeah. And, and the reason I mentioned Nefesh, but Nefesh, of course, is because that's where we met so many lone soldiers who are not from Orthodox backgrounds and are ready to put their lives on the line for the state of Israel, because that's how they were brought up. Rabbi Hart Levine is with us, Senior Education Leadership and Learning Director at uh, RZA Mizrahi. RZA Mizrahi, of course, is sponsoring our event next uh, Friday, which is our big Lagba Omer celebration. Even more importantly, they're leading, and they are the leaders in getting us back to Israel, because once uh, groups were uh, approved, or, or almost approved, as we wait for final approval, uh, to go to Israel starting May the 21st, uh, Mizrahi uh, uh, jumped on the bandwagon, and you know, R- Rabbi Levine, that's that's important both practically and symbolically. That RZA, the Religious Zionists of America, are the first ones to to form a group and get to Israel ASAP. Sure, correct. We, I mean, we're trying to do it because we also really want to be back to Israel, but but also, right? I think symbolically, you're right. Like, we're not going to be having we're not going to have hundreds of people on this mission. It's just, just because of COVID and all the regulations can be very limited. But we feel like we're we're coming as representatives symbolically of all the people in America. Yep. I I really miss Israel. Um, yep. This is the first time in probably as long as we could remember that, or as long as I could remember that we couldn't just hop on a plane um, and, and go to Israel. And there's there's a sense of longing of sort of missing being being at home. Um, so, so yeah, we're trying to sort of capture that. That longing. Yeah, and uh, look, uh, people hang on every word when we broadcast from Israel, and and this trip, you know, please God, we get there next month. The people will literally uh, be glued uh, to the uh, to the airwaves just because people are desperate for that connection. They're desperate for 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 something to bridge the gap between Israel and the diaspora during this pandemic. My heart, Levine is with us talking about the RZA 
uh, and um, and religious Zionism. By the way, I, I mean, are, are you still up in Washington Heights as a rabbi? Is that uh, have, have I, I am. Yep. Are you still yep. the rabbi in the synagogue? Right now. So, how has that experience um, uh, uh, given you a um, a perspective on? on what it is that that generation is looking for. Because you, you, when someone's working for an organization, making an effort, visiting college campuses, et cetera, I think people view uh, you know, that person and their message in one way. But when someone's you know, on a pulpit and attracting people to come and daven on a weekly basis, I think they, they view them otherwise. How do you think the synagogue experience has enhanced what you're trying to do with our youth? Yeah, I think it's actually really helpful for me because it's not just working sort of like um, in a cloud, trying to work with people in theory, but but I'm also working with people on the ground on a, on a daily basis. Um, and I'm always looking for sort of like ways to connect people, inspire people. Um, I, don't, I also feel like where people we're, we're working with a very with a, a largely very transient population, people in their 20s and 30s who are trying to figure out where to go, stopping here for a few years, there for a few years. And we've seen people in our community who've sort of like made the jump and, and made it to Israel. And I see how much um, Israel and sort of like Israel as a sense of home, as a sense of inspiration, um, is really is really a powerful force. Has the synagogue been, I don't know, fully reopened now at this point, or how would you describe it? We've been, we've definitely pivoted. Um, we don't have that big of a, a physical location, so we're, we're limited in our capacity there. We've been doing a lot of things outside in the parks, um, even in the winter, in the, in, in the snowstorms. Wow. Um, so we've definitely sort of come back to life, but, but it definitely looks different. I think it says something about the Jewish people that we gathered on snow-covered parks in order to make sure to dive in with a minion during this pandemic. I, that, that's a whole other sermon, but, <laughs> but, but I think it definitely says something about us. You know, one of the things I read uh, as I was uh, looking at the uh, RZA website and some of the things that... Um, are included in your messages is you know you just mentioned watching people and helping them you know move to Israel etc. That that's not the eventuality that you're necessarily uh, striving for. Obviously you're 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 happy when you hear of anybody of any age moving to the Holy Land. We all believe that the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel. Um, but but th- there are there are goals you have that are you know shorter than that uh, in terms of education and inspiration. And uh, I, I know that it's it's it seems like based on what I read that it's important to you to always remember that that you know you shouldn't look at it as a failure if the person you're working with doesn't eventually move six thousand miles. For sure, I think some people see religious Zionism as sort of aliyah or bust. Right, right. Um, if you really care, you're living in Israel, and if you're living here, it must be your failure. And I think we're trying to shift that. Not that aliyah is not a goal; uh, it's not a primary goal. But for a lot of people, that's not sort of like the, the calling right now. And what we're trying to say is that there are messages and there are missions of religious Zionism, and there's a calling for religious Zionism in America to bring, to bring some of those ideals, that, that sense of purpose, that sense of we're working towards redemption, that I feel like is sort of like missing from the conversation in America. I, I, I think religious Zionism and people inspired by religious Zionism um, have a responsibility to bring some of those teachings into our community here. Yeah, and imagine if they are inspired and it becomes part of them, what they do then for the next generation. And again, not yeah. necessarily meaning that, 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 that it would be the next generation that moves, but just a, you know, a, 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 like I described earlier, a, a feeling that one belongs to the Jewish people, and if only everybody would realize how important a, a component Israel is in one believing that they belong 
you know, as part of the Jewish people. And, and on this Herzl Day, today being Herzl's birthday, and an actual <laughs> national holiday in Israel, I mean, isn't that, you know, what the message is all about? That the state of Israel, uh, the land of Israel first, of course, and then the state of Israel gives an opportunity for people to feel connected to be part of the Jewish people. And, uh, you know... Yeah, for sure. I think, I don't know, we were doing some research on the history of, of, of Mizrahi back in the early 1900s, and we were actually really surprised that I think Mizrahi or parts of Mizrahi actually voted for the Uganda plan right. for the Jewish state not to be in Israel. And we're like, right. how could that be? I thought Mizrahi is all about the centrality of the land of Israel, and that's true, but they also believe in the centrality of the Jewish people being connected to what does it mean to be a Jewish people, a nation. Right. Um, and so obviously we support the state of Israel, but we also support the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the Torah of Israel, which are all part of the Mizrahi mission. Yeah, I always talk about Uganda as a uh, desperation for a homeland. And it's hard for us, you know, who, who travel for two weeks and, you know, sit in a hotel and get a rent-a-car in Israel these days. It's hard for us to relate to a time when a Jewish people was desperate for a homeland, desperate for a place to be together and grow together and not be, uh, hopefully, not be... Uh, uh, you know, under the um, uh, tyranny of other governments, etc. But that—that's what it was like. You know, they—they they were just desperate. At, at the minimum, at the minimum, if we, if we have to go somewhere in Africa, let's do it. But obviously, the ultimate is being in the land of Israel. Um, Rabbi Hart Levine is with us next month. We travel, please God, assuming the Israeli government agrees with us. We travel to Israel, where we'll be with our friends with Mizrahi. Mizrahi presents our big Lagba Omer celebration, an event that, frankly, we are uh, viewing as one that unites the Jewish world. People in Israel will be watching and listening in Friday afternoon, Lag Omer Erev Shabbos, and of course people around the world will be tuned in whenever appropriate for them in another world-unifying event. And I hope that everybody out there uh, is tuned in and is part of the big celebration. And Rabbi Levine, all I could say is that I, I'm sure you agree, especially with the amount of time you spend uh, analyzing uh, the, the data and the uh, initiatives that have to do with Jewish youth, I'm sure you agree that whenever there's an infusion of uh, of young blood into any organization, especially uh, you know of effective people who come with a great background like yourself, um, there is tremendous hope and uh, a tremendous growth potential. And again, I am in no way, um, in no way uh, minimizing the incredible work over the decades of what's happened at the RZA. But already, I am getting the feeling, just based on the initiatives that have been uh, undertaken and the attitude that's out there publicly. Uh, that the RZA is ready uh, to, you know, for the next step, so to speak. And I hope that in your position, how long have you been in this position now? How long have you been with RZA? Uh, um, for, uh, less than a year, around six months. Well, I hope in this half a year you've gotten the same impression and you feel the same way. Yeah, I'm definitely excited for what's to come and for what we're working on now. I think I think there's a lot of potential. Beyond the trip, what are you working on? I'll put you on the spot. What what can we expect over the next next half a year? Uh, do you do, yes. do you need the college campuses to reopen? Do you need a lot of in person stuff happening in order to uh, get your initiatives going? We, we don't need things to be uh, open up, but I think we're I think that's where I think we're headed. So we're we're starting to look there, but we're definitely looking to sort of to, to mobilize and to, uh, and to bring together people coming from um, meaning a lot of people were in gap years in Israel and they're coming back to colleges in America. Right. About how, and think about how do we leverage that inspiration, that uh, sort of like drive to do something to make a difference, um, and and specifically in the realm of the Jewish nation, the Jewish homeland, the, the Torah of Israel. I think there's a lot that we're trying to do. Um, we're starting a fellowship for college students um, this summer, 
So there's a lot that's going to start happening. And you're raising one of the most important points. There are so many amazing groups. You see them, high school groups. I mean, I can name them, but I won't now. High school groups, um, uh, religious Zionist groups, some really well-known that do amazing work in high school, in college, gap year, et cetera. But then beyond that, once students are back here, whether it's before or after college, it, it, they, they sometimes have no avenue to really express you know, their passion for Israel and their passion for you know, Jewish continuity and their involvement in the Jewish community. And if you can concentrate on that age group and really feel that they, in an organized fashion, can grow in that area, that's a major accomplishment. And it sounds like that's what you want to do. So, Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know if you're joining us next Friday or not, but you're certainly invited. And I thank you so much for joining us this morning and continued success with the RZA. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I will uh, maybe see you next week and also maybe see you in Israel. I hope so. I hope on both occasions we will see each other. JM in the AM. That's right. My heart, Levine, here on a JM in the AM Thursday morning. For information about the journey, you go to rza.org slash journey home about all the uh, upcoming trips, rza.org slash journey home. And again, I thank Mizrahi. They are sponsoring our major Lagba Omer five-hour JM in the AM celebration next Friday. It is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Rabbi Hart Levine of Mizrahi RZA. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more coming up. Next week, it'll be another edition of JM Rewind. Right now, right now it's more programming for you in a, th- in a sphere of format at the Nahum Siegel Network.